Hi everyone, I'm Pastor Brendan, delighted to be bringing the word to you again this week. We're returning to where we left off in our account of Nehemiah and the rebuilding of Israel in chapter 10 of that book. I'm going to pray and then we're going to get into the word. Let's pray together. Father God, we thank you so much for your word and we pray that you open it to our hearts and we pray that you open up our hearts to what you have to say to us as well. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So, Israel had returned to the promised land. Those had followed Nehemiah uh, after they'd uh, left for their exile. They'd returned to the land of Israel to find it ruined and all the walls destroyed still and the place in the, in the desolation they'd left it uh, some 70 years before when they'd gone into exile. They'd rebuilt the walls and gates with a tool in one hand and a weapon in the other and they'd given this extra effort to accomplish this quickly. Uh, they know that the nations around them, they're jealous of the favor that King Artaxerxes of Persia is showing to the Israelites during this time. They're looking for any excuse they can to crush this project, but they don't get it. Uh, the walls and the gates get rebuilt. Jerusalem becomes this bastion in the region uh, for the flourishing of God's people. And in the course of rebuilding this temple and rededicating themselves on the covenant that God gave to Moses, uh, the prophet Ezra reads the book of the law to them. Uh, he's probably reading from uh, the law of Mo well. He's reading from the law of Moses. He's probably reading from Deuteronomy, Leviticus, Numbers, maybe a selection from Genesis and Exodus as well. But he reads from daybreak until noon on this day, six or seven hours of reading to the assembled people of Israel as they are so convicted they're brought to tears by what they hear. But they realize quickly that they're actually in the time of the Feast of Booths. Uh, that they hadn't celebrated in many years, the Feast of Tabernacles. And so they've, they put off this mourning, they're experiencing the grief for what they've done and the, the guilt of their um, neglecting this covenant. They put that off until they have completed this feast in celebration. Uh, and they do that for seven days. And then they repeat this process of reading the law uh, during those days as well. And once that feast is over, in a couple of weeks hence, they come in sackcloth and ashes to repent of what they've done, confessing the sins of themselves and of their ancestors. And in the last verse of chapter 9, uh, the chapter brought to us last week, we hear this. In view of all this, we are making a binding agreement, putting it in writing, and our leaders and our Levites and our priests are affixing their seals to it. And so chapter 10 is that agreement. It's kind of a copy of that as almost like a contract. In fact, exactly like a contract. It's the same formal style that we expect from a contract that people might uh, sign today except that Nehemiah and the, the signatories sign it first rather than last. There's a statement of what's uh, professionally called compass mentis, being in the right mind to understand what they are signing up for. Um, they are willingly placing themselves on this covenant under punishment of a curse uh, if they violate it, uh, to explicitly follow the law given to them by Moses. And there might even be a neutral witness to the contract if you count Ezra, who doesn't sign the document for some reason that's not explained. Maybe he was standing aside there as a, uh, as a prophet, sort of standing between man and God on either side of this agreement. But we, it's hard to know exactly why Ezra didn't sign it. I count 85 signatories in this new uh, renewed covenant, uh, and I see eight statements of what they are agreeing that they will do, all with some kind of I will or we will do this statement as we go through the chapter. and There are three chapters left after this. If you're taking notes, those statements are worth writing down, or if not those eight statements as we get to them, uh, then certainly the three principles around which all those statements fall, and we'll get to those as we move through the chapter. 
But before that, there are three groups that are bound by this contract covenant um, of the people renewing this relationship with the Lord, plus a special caveat for the governorship of Israel. And in verse 1, we have those who, it, uh, who sealed it, those who sealed it were Nehemiah the governor, the son of Hakaliah, Zedekiah, and that's verse 1. Now, Nehemiah is in a category kind of of his own. He's the administrator. He's the governor of Israel. Uh, Zedekiah here is a bit of a mystery. He's either a scribe working with Nehemiah, he's either Zadok the scribe, um, in which case he's sort of this administrator category as well. Or he's, um, he's a priest like those mentioned immediately after in the following verses, in verses 2 to 8. Now, there's a lot of names in this chapter, and I thought about dodging them, but I decided that seemed cowardly. So I'm going to read them all, but I would like to announce the Nehemiah 10 tongue twister challenge. If you can read this entire chapter's list of names smoother than I can and send me that video, I will give you like a $20 Kurong voucher. Um, chapter 10, verse, starting at verse 2. Seraiah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashur, Amariah, Malkijah, Hatush, Shebaniah, Malok, Harim, Meramoth, Obadiah, Daniel, Ginnathon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Majiman, Maaziah, Bilgai, and Shemaiah. These were the priests. So Nehemiah opens up this list of signatories um, as the one on top of that list himself, the one God had laid this task of rebuilding the nation to. Uh, but right away we get this establishment again, the renewed establishment of the priesthood of Israel. After 70 years in Babylon, none of these priests have ever been priests before. They're stepping up and they are being recognized and taking on this responsibility, which means their life will be consumed by the work that they do uh, to mediate between God and the Israelites. It's not a small job. And then immediately after that come the Levites in verses 9 to 13. The Levites... Jeshua, son of Azaniah, Binui of the sons of Henadad, Cadmiel, and their associates, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kalita, Paliah, Hanan, Mika, Rohob, Hashabiah, Zakur, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, and Beninur. Our good friend Beninur. The Levites. And now these Levites were well, once a tribe of their own, we know, uh, when they first came into the land of Israel. Now so much as time has passed since then, the lands have been devastated over and over. Uh, they've been in exile and out and back again. They pick up again the identity of their office as these temple workers, helping out the priests with this holy calling, but not quite so much divided by the tribal boundaries as before. And finally comes the last category, the list of leaders of the people in verses 14 through 27. Here we go. Leaders of the people. Parosh, Pahath Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Buni, Asgad, Bebei, <laughs> Adonijah, Bigvai, Adin, Atta, Hezekiah, Azur, Hodiah, Hashum, Bazai, Haraf, Anathoth, Nabai, Magpiash, Meshulam, Hazir, Meshazabel, Zadok, Jadua, Pelatiah, Hanan, Anaiah, Hushia, Hananiah, Hashub, Halohesh, Pilha, Shobek, Rehum, uh, Hashabna, uh, Maasiah, Ahaiah, Hanan, Anan, Malok, Harim, and Baana. 
And these guys are identified as the leaders of the people. They do not have an appointed king at this time, both because Persia would be very alarmed if they went to Israel and immediately declared a new king, and because they're probably because they've just been reading the words of Moses day after day, where Moses in Deuteronomy practically shouts of the Israelites that merely a mortal king will not solve their problems and it'll only make things worse. But these leaders, a kind of Hebrew noble class that didn't seem to exist going into the exile, but certainly exists coming out of it, they stand with the priests and the Levites as representatives of the entire body of the Israelite people, and they're returning to this covenant of God. So that's a note worth taking. Priests, Levites, and nobles, they are the three groups that step up to be bound by this covenant. Verse 29 says, With a curse and an oath to follow the law of God given through Moses, the servant of God, and to obey carefully all the commands, regulations, and decrees of the Lord, our Lord. Now to follow all the commands and regulations and the decrees is a pretty broad and encompassing category. It's a catch-all. I think that that would probably cover every deviation from God's word written down, but they list eight declarations immediately after that, declarations of responsibilities, perhaps for clarity, perhaps because these were the areas that Nehemiah expected people would be most likely to stumble at and therefore needed the most holding to account. And we're going to go through those eight here in summary, and really we'll see that those eight can actually fit into three. And those three are the basis for Israel's renewal of devotion to God on the ongoing promise that he has for them. And this should be of importance to us because just as in the case of uh, being your first day as a believer, um, or if you are coming to join the winning team a little bit later, uh, Christians are being called into a covenant with God, and they're constantly being called into that covenant with God through the Lord Jesus who paid the penalty for our failures, sealed by the Holy Spirit who dwells in every believer. That's a once-and-for-all establishment of grace that saves us and redeems us. And our goal in life is to bring the message of that saving grace to the world, but also to live a life pure and worthy and uh, worthy of that blessing as much as possible. And as far as focusing on that life pure and worth of that blessing goes, you are going to fail, and you're going to fall down at that. And if you're going to do it right over a long enough period of time, you'll fall down more gently and get up more quickly as time goes on. Uh, being a disciple of the Lord is something you practice and get better at. But no believer is going to get from day one of his or her rebirth as a child of God to the final day they get to stand before the Lord without some periods of collapse and then renewal and confession again and recommitment to the Lord. In a sense, that's what Jesus was referring to when he was washing his disciples' feet in John chapter 13, verses 6 to 10, where this is said. He came to Simon Peter, who said to him, Lord, are you going to wash my feet? Jesus replied, You do not realize now what I am doing, but later you will understand. No, said Peter, you shall never wash my feet. Jesus answered, Unless I wash you, you will have no part with me. Then Lord Simon Peter replied, Not just my feet, but my hands and my head as well. Jesus answered, Those who have had a bath need only to wash their feet. Their whole body is clean. And those who, have, who, are, who are saved, they've already had their spiritual bath. We even embody that process in a symbol we call baptism. But 
So long as man is walking the earth, he's going to need to wash his feet. And so long as believers are called by God to live our faith uh, in a world that is still fallen and still sinful, we're going to need times we confess our sins and we devote ourselves anew and take the Spirit's lead on standing again and walking again on that straight and narrow path. So let's look at what the returned exiles agree to as their points of reform, the things they need to focus on, and see how they map to our devotion to the covenant that God has made with us. Now we're going to go through these in in summary rather than read them out all extensively, uh, but you can definitely read this passage yourself. This starts at verse 30. But the first thing they agree to is no marriage into the surrounding tribes, no giving of their sons to those tribes, nor um, taking daughters from those tribes. Now, this has been Israel's bane since the book of Numbers, when the prophet Balaam played matchmaker with the Israelites and the surrounding tribes to cause them trouble. And marriage was something of a different creature back then, but the elements are basically the same. A man and a woman come together from two separate families to form a new family blended from the two. And if one half of that family worships the Lord and the other half worships some some false regional god, then you're going to likely end up with half of a devotion at best in that family. A family that's half committed to the real God at best, and then we know that our God doesn't share. His relationship with the world is too important, and Israel's role as his priesthood to the world is too important to compromise. This marriage ban of the surrounding nations to the Israelites has been abused where it appears in Scripture so many times in history as a justifier for racist ideas of keeping ethnic groups apart and keeping them from marrying. It's hard not to think of those things because most Australians are desperately afraid of being called racist uh, and being perceived as racist, and for that matter, because our country has more than its share of, uh, of pretty racist government policy in its history, preventing ethnic groups from intermarrying. This is not what God has asked for. It's never been what God has asked for. There's a whole book of the Bible called Ruth, about a woman from the tribe of Moab, not the Israelites, who has taken on the God of Israel as her God and is seeking an Israelite husband. And the big point of that book is that her allegiance to God makes her one of his people. And her blood doesn't really hold her back at all. Not only does she land the man that she is chasing, God sees fit to put her in the ancestry of the Lord Jesus. It's hard to find a better endorsement than that. The Israelite ban on marriage was always about not putting husbands or wives in a position where they are married to someone worshipping a false god. Because the bonds of marriage are incredibly powerful and they obligate us to accommodate our loved ones as much as we can. And that's a beautiful instinct when it comes to finding a compromise about who mows the lawn or how many kids to have. It's devastating when it comes to the question, whom shall I follow my whole life? Marriages to the tribes that worship the other gods These false gods, they inevitably result in bringing in false idols into Israel, propping up their worship inside the people of Israel, and then being a final state of being where it's just not obvious to the world that Israel's God is real and the others are not, at which point God has to step back and says, well, fine, we'll see if your new friends will rescue you when the next army of Philistines comes screaming down the hill. And really, this is a rule about not putting yourself in a situation where you are obligated to compromise your faith, to not put yourself in that kind of situation. Because your faith is supposed to be the primary commitment of your life. And Christians still do this. 
There are Christians who date and propose to and marry non-Christians, and you'd have to have a frozen heart not to understand why. Loneliness sucks. Lots of people are secretly afraid that they just aren't likable enough that someone will agree to be around them for 50 years. And when someone comes along and there's some kind of chemistry there, it's the easiest thing in the world, particularly for young Christians, to justify to themselves and to say, well, they say they're open of the idea to come to church. Maybe if we hang out a bunch, they'll get to an alpha course. Maybe if we get married, they'll see church people aren't that scary. Uh, maybe 50 years from now, they'll announce at my funeral that my selfless love and devotion has won the battle and they'll get baptized. It's the easiest thing in the world to make excuses for what we want. But we are not called to do easy things. We are called to do hard things. And for Israelites seeking the security of a profitable and fruitful marriage contract and Christians seeking someone who will share their life, the hard thing is placing our devotion to God above the very normal very powerful instinct to accommodate those we love. Marriage is just the capital example of this, but it's, uh, it applies more broadly than that. A business relationship to someone who has the power to obligate you to use your money or your time or your labor in a way that doesn't glorify God is the same principle. Surrounding yourself with friends whose friendship requires you to do things that would offend your conscience as a believer, that's the same principle. And when we recommit to God, it's worth asking the question, am I doing something that is putting me in a position where I am required to compromise my faith? And what can I do about that? Now, the Bible's pretty clear about binding oaths. A Christian who is married to a non-Christian is still totally obligated to be the best, most loving, most amazing spouse, uh, such that their husband or wife has every reason to conclude that they are being personally blessed by God. But some other situations, like the friends we surround ourselves with, we can do something about. It may be hard or difficult, but that's within our power. And that's something worth thinking about when we ask forgiveness and reflect on how we ended up in that situation to begin with. That's number one. Now here's two at once for the second principle. This is uh, items two and three of the things they agree to, honor the Sabbath in verse 31, and honor the festivals and offerings in verses 32 and 33. Now here's two more of these things that Israel agrees to, and they're part of the second principle that we can all follow. Two and three are honor the Sabbath in verse 31, and honor the festivals and offerings in verses 32 and 33. Having emerged from exile in a land without a temple, uh, and without a deep appreciation of what the law of Moses was and what it requires of them, uh, the Israelites have been living without their sacrifices. They had no, temp no temple to sacrifice at if they wanted to. They had no priest to do the sacrifices and therefore no festivals and especially no Day of Atonement festival to which all other festivals and sacrifices are pointing and counting on. But the temple is rebuilt at this time and uh, Jerusalem restored, and the priests and Levites are being delineated again in their groups. The time has come to honor these things again. And the Sabbath, too, has fallen to the wayside, uh, and the time has come to restore that as well. And the things that the Israelites did to make themselves distinct from the nations, to make themselves more deeply aware and deeply devoted to God, they were essential to the spiritual health of their people. And that comes with some costs. To use a technical term, we're talking about opportunity costs 
here. An Israelite merchant, for example, he might be pretty happy to sell, say, his figs and grapes uh, to the surrounding nations, but if a Hittite trader comes knocking at the door on the Sabbath day or during a festival during which his attention must be given over to the ceremonies rather than to any trading work, he just has to let that guy wait. He has to leave that money on the table. That's a loss of opportunity for profit for that guy. Or for less material things, it can interfere as well. If someone was sick and you needed to visit them, then there's a festival in the way, you might just have to wait. If someone dies and you need to mourn, your feelings might have to wait until after a, a festival or celebration that requires you to be joyful. It's not a trivial cost, it's subordination to a schedule other than our own. Because a devotion to God is meant to be the central pillar of someone's life. Now, Christians aren't called to celebrate these time-locked festivals. Um, much as we cherish Christmas and Easter, uh, we're not demanded to celebrate them on time or in a specific way. Christians aren't called to celebrate quite in that same way. And Jesus gave us a considerable amount of extra slack as far as the Sabbath goes, for that matter, as well. Strictly speaking, there's only two traditions or festivals that we are called to observe at all. One's baptism, and you can kind of do that well, ideally, pretty soon after you become a Christian, and then again, and then even then only once uh, you have to do that. And then there's the Lord's Supper, which we do as often as we gather together, or in principle, often enough that it's a significant heartbeat of your church's life. And we're not required to take the Sabbath in total rest under pain of punishment, but in practice, uh, the church has adopted the tradition of making Sunday kind of Sabbath-ish anyway. It becomes a day we devote to God, obviously because of church attendance, and also for many churches and families, the remainder of the day is given over to family time or to Bible study or to gathering together in one way or another. And we, like the Israelites before us, we live surrounded by a culture that doesn't show a lot of regard for those traditions. Uh, we're long past the era of shops being closed on Sunday. That's super convenient if you wake up to an empty fridge on Sunday uh, and you starve through early church and you hustle off to grab a cheeky kebab snack pack for lunch. The meal, of course, baptized out of its halal origins by being immersed in barbecue and garlic sauce. But for all the convenience Australia has gained with Sunday trading, we've lost a universal day where people were free to gather with their friends and their family and their faith community. Young people, especially at the time in their life when they most need to sink their roots into their church, they are often in the kind of jobs that demand Sunday shifts or just incentivize them uh, with extra pay. Gathering together on a Sunday and on other regular occasions for connect group and stuff like that, they are not optional parts of the Christian walk. It's how we introduce a common experience into our very lives. It's how we grow together as a body of believers how we worship and seek the knowledge of God together. And that's going to mean that sometimes you might lose out on doing other things. Opportunities at work or recreation, um, because you can only really be in one place at one time. You might not be able to put your kids in the soccer league they want to play in because they play on Sunday morning. You might not be able to take the job that you wanted most because they give you no time for church, or at least you might need to have a serious think about whether that job is worth attending a church that meets sometime other than Sunday and, and changing and whatever that requires for your schedule. 
But the point of these two things uh, that the Israelite agrees to and, and that the point of this principle to which we must hold is that our faith is not simply a fact that we know um, that can be sort of just smush into our free time. If we are confessing our sins and looking back on the path on which we have walked and how it's led us to a point where we needed to confess our sins, it's worth asking if we failed to make the time that we need to gather and worship and study the Word of God and to make that a real priority, a regular priority. So that's the second principle, regular prioritizing of that time together. And here's the third principle spread over the last five points that the Israelites agree to, uh, to which they pledge themselves in verses 34 through 38. They say that they will donate the wood. The people will, uh, will from themselves, donate the wood to keep the fire burning at the temple altar constantly. Uh, they will donate their first fruits and their crops to the temple as they've been required by the law of Moses. They will devote the firstborn of their livestock and their firstborn sons to the temple. They will return to their tithing practices as the law requires. And it's all summed up by the final words in the chapter and the last thing they agree to, we will not neglect the house of our God. Now the temple was just an enormous institution in the life of Israelites. It was conceived that the offerings to the temple would support the whole tribe of Levi uh, and furnish the temple with what it needed for all its sacrifices and festivals. Ten of the tribes of Israel had been scattered away at this point, and only Judah and a little chunk of Benjamin remains. But all in all, is a similar representation of the Levites and the priests in that, uh, in that remnant. And the temple and its priests and its Levites, they were utterly reliant on the people's contribution and involvement to function in the church at all, in the temple at all, I should say. And to this, uh, in these various ways, they commit themselves again in this passage. And it's not hard to see where the parallel lies for us in this principle. The church is not a temple, uh, to be clear about that. The temple is first and foremost the location where people go to meet with God, to be reconciled, to him, and that location is now found in a person, in our Savior, Jesus Christ. And you can go to Jesus to be saved without getting out of your chair, and you should. But the churches of Jesus Christ do play a similar role as physical places, as the staffed institutions that allow the local community of believers to have a local presence, to, uh, to gather in the way that Jesus commanded and as a hub where people can learn and worship and grow together. And on that topic, it's incredibly encouraging to see the way the, uh, the offering has sustained throughout this disrupted time of church gathering, and that's a credit to the givers and glory of God. But the church, any church, requires tangible sacrifices, time uh, carved out from our busy lives to run and to help in the ministries and support and prayer offered to the hard-working missionaries we support, uh, praying for and with the church to whom you belong. All of these necessary offerings that we bring, they don't just cost us time and resources, but they build us up in the act of giving them. Just as the act of giving not only enriches the receiver, it also makes the giver more generous. Devoting some of our time and resources to ministries that the church uh, is engaged in makes us more engaged in the church and the mission of the church and with the God who calls us to serve 
in the mission of that church. It's possible to be involved in a church, but skimming just the surface of that experience, uh, just so that our spiritual life isn't really being nourished by our participation. And when we are confessing our sins and considering how we might better serve our God in a renewed commitment, it's worth asking, am I personally invested in the work of my church? If the answer is a no or a uh, not really, it behooves you to think about how you might become personally invested in the work of your church. Because it's hard to love a community and to serve a community if you have uh, yourself no real commitment to it beyond consuming the service that that community offers to you. The story of the Israelites is one of falling down and getting up and knowing a little bit more about God. I'm staring at the wrong camera. The story of the Israelites is one... The story of the... Is I'm laughing now. That's, no, this is all me. This is me being dumb. All right, I'm good. Are we still good? Yep. Great. The story of the Israelites is one of falling down and getting up and knowing a little bit more about God each time they go through that loop. And that's a giant historical mirror that reflects our tiny individual lives as believers, seeking our Savior, stumbling on that path, rising again to a new commitment. You don't need to commit these eight uh, Israelite commitments from the time of Nehemiah to your memory. They're certainly interesting to study. They're worth studying, and I hope you read this passage in your own time as well. But the three principles behind them, into which they all fit, well, they're worth holding on to. They're worth taking note of. They're valuable to God's children from the beginning to the end of time. We will not put ourselves in a place where we are required to compromise. We will prioritize our time of gathering with other believers to worship God together and to study His Word, and we will not neglect the participation in our church. These are strong principles for a follower of Jesus to commit to and to recommit to in those times when we do fail in our walk. And we owe our lives as living sacrifices to our Lord for all He's done for us. A life like this committed to our Father in this way is the best way to live a life that is more and more worthy of the blessing that we have been given. So let's pray together. Father God, you're our maker, your son is our savior, your spirit is our guide, and we need you now as disciples as much as we needed you when we were lost. Forgive us our sins, Father, and give us eyes to see how and where we are culpable for making ourselves vulnerable to the sins we should be avoiding and mastering. Give us resolve to change what we can to better serve you without exposing ourselves to sin and fortitude to live well in a world that seems desperate to disrupt our efforts to follow you. To you we are committed, Father, and into your hands we press that commitment again. We pray this in your Son, Jesus' name. Amen.